This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Kia ora and welcome to Changing Lenses, a unique perspective on health and wellness. Our purpose is to share the nurse's story. Changing Lenses is based on the narrative of the personal journey of six nurses. It will take shape over a six-week period. These radio interviews allows you, the listener, to hear the human story of nurses, their successes, challenges and how they see the world around them. My name is Anna Aikman and this is Changing Lenses. Good morning, and this morning we continue Changing Lenses, uh, our nurse's story. And today we have uh, Jean Ross uh, joining us. Jean is a registered nurse in New Zealand and the UK since 1991 and 1982 respectively. Jean received her Bachelor of Nursing in 1998, her Master's Arts Nursing in 2001, and her PhD in 2016. Jean is a visionary, a change agent, and brings to all of her work strategic foresight. Jean has received recognition for her leadership with her early work associated with rural nursing and rural healthcare, and subsequently received the status of becoming a fellow of the College of Nurses Aotearoa New Zealand in 1998, which she has maintained. The culmination of Jean's work demonstrates her dedication to rural nursing and has spanned the past 25 years. Welcome Jean to the studio and our conversations around changing lenses, a unique perspective in health and wellness. Thank you. So I think, you know, that the first thing that I'd really like to ask you, you came back from a plane yesterday. I did. (laughs) And I'd really love you to share that story uh, with us. Okay, so yes, I landed yesterday afternoon um, from a long, long trip from Iceland. And uh, so really, I think it's about 27 hours in the air and, you know, um, transit as well. So the reason why I went to, tra- went to Iceland was I had the opportunity to support my son, my 17-year-old son, who was playing ice hockey for New Zealand at the World Under-20s Men's Championship. And Iceland was somewhere I'd always wanted to go. So when the opportunity arose, I thought, oh, yes, I'd love to go. And he wanted me to go as well. So that was nice. And Iceland, of course, different to being uh, New Zealand seasonal at the moment is it is very dark in Iceland at the moment. It was very cold and it was snowing. And what was remarkable to me was the way that people adapt to that lifestyle um, of the complete darkness from 4.30 in the afternoon to 11 o'clock in the morning. But when it snowed, the transformation of the place was significantly just amazing in that there was light everywhere. And um, I was pretty blown away by the place and the people. Interesting that you talk about the light. And I I wonder how maybe the light and the change of seasons affects our health and well-being. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> Being a, um, you know, a, a nurse who constantly looks to see how things can be improved and challenges our everyday being. Um, so I met with an associate professor in nursing from the University of Iceland, and that was one question I wanted to ask her. How do people adapt to the lifestyle there? And she says, well... 
um, seasonal um, depression is very common and everybody knows about it. So much so that they are aware of needing vitamin D, taking supplements of vitamin D um, and knowing where you can get vitamin D from. Um, which I thought was, well, yes, that's, that's, that's the way Icelandic people are. And I also was aware of the Icelandic people of being a truly common sense. When you've only got 365,000 people who live in a, in a land such as Iceland, um, very much common sense prevailed. And I guess that's uh, indicative of the landscape. The yeah. landscape, um, something I'm very interested in myself, um, how context of seasons land, um, so forth, how, how people adapt to that. It's very much part of my, my makeup. And I did ask her, um, you know, how do you live like, how do you live like this? And she says, in the winter, we are um, slightly depressed. But come summer, we've got so much more energy. We don't sleep as much because it's 24-7 light. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, Jean, you were just uh, relaying a wee story to us um, earlier prior to coming into the studio about your transition from Iceland into New Zealand and into the cold weather and the heat of yesterday and your experience, well, your son's experience at the airport. And uh, I guess that shows us how extreme weather patterns can be. Mm -hmm. So would you like to share that wee story? Okay, so we, uh, we came from minus 11, snowing in a blizzard, um, driving from uh, Reykjavik um, to the airport, which is a significantly long way. It's a 45-minute drive in a bus. Um, and what's unique about, I'll just show you what's unique about Iceland, which I think is something absolutely purest, is that buses large buses, coaches, go to a certain destination. And then from there, you get on a smaller bus that takes you into Reykjavik, the, the, um, the capital of Iceland. But from then on, it, those small buses are not allowed into the centre. So you, wherever you're staying, you're, you're deposited at different areas, and then you walk with your cases and whatever. And I think that actually has some kind of significant... Um, Almost um, um, ensuring that, that people who walk in Iceland can walk safely, um, that the locals can walk safely, that they're not completely bombarded with tourists. And I'll just share one thing other. After eight days of being there, I only heard sirens once. And that, that I was aware of that. I was aware that there's this um, uh, almost uh, noise pollution wasn't there. It was, it was remarkable. However, so we, we left it on minus 11 in a blizzard. The airport was functional. <laughs> no problem. You know, ice, snow, it, everything was working. And we um, eventually arrived uh, yesterday at about 5 o'clock of Happersfall um, to um, Christchurch, in which my son and the other, some of the other ice hockey players were going to be going to Queenstown. Um, and off they go. And I stayed here overnight in Christchurch. And um, then I eventually ran my son, how are you? And he said, um, oh, I said, where are you? And he says, oh, we're at um, the manager's house. And I said, you're at the manager's house, why? And he said, uh, oh, because our plane couldn't land and had to be turned back from uh, Queenstown back to Dunedin 
because of the significant weather, the storm that came in. Um, and um, then they couldn't open the door of the uh, of the uh, of the plane because the wind was too much, so they had to get a lorry between the between the lorry and the on the um, plane so they could open the door. That's that's adaptable as well. <laughs> Phenomenal when I heard uh, that story. And one question comes to mind as we talk about uh, extreme weather patterns: Were there concerns about the change in maybe? the ice, the melting in Iceland, are there concerns around how people will live and how their health will be uh, affected because of the major climate changes? Well, um, I didn't ask specifically that question when I was talking with the associate professor, but she did mention that um, Icelandic people would eat an awful lot of fish and um, to to keep up their vitamin D levels. However, fish is becoming a lot more expensive in Iceland for locals to purchase. And that's because there isn't so much fish being caught. And the locals, she said, put that down to climate change. So um, it's affecting us all. Mm-hmm. So, Jean, thank you for sharing your um, holiday and your time away with us. And as we uh, continue into your story, let's talk a bit about who you are, Mm -hmm. where you came from, sense of belonging, and what brings you, uh, what brought you to nursing? Okay. So I'm, as you initially said, I am from the UK. I'm from Wales. I'm from a a small island off the mainland, which is uh, in North Wales, Bangor, Anglesey, um, Isle of Morn, um, for those who understand uh, that's the mother the mother of Wales, and I'm off an island of that called Hollyhead. Um, I've been always aware of um, isolation in different perspectives. So we were not isolated in a in a form that we were a small de- um, small population, but we were most mostly isolated from access of services. Um, nursing to me, um, I've always wanted to be a nurse. There was never any question from the age of three or four. Um, I, w- I knew I was going to be a nurse. And when people were at school in their teens and the question would be raised, um, what are you going to do when you leave school? Some people would say or some young teenagers would say, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And I would think to myself, how don't you know what you're going to be? And people said to me, well, I'm going to be a nurse. And um, so that's not something I've never had to choose I never had a conscious decision whether I was going to. It was innate. It was in me. And so I am a nurse. That's how that came about. Um, And I think that's firstly, um, would I say I'm a nurse first? Yes, I'm a nurse first. Um, And I'll tell you another little story. Um, We were on the plane from Manchester to Iceland. And they called for, is there a doctor on on the plane, we have a um, an ill passenger. So I heard that. I looked up the um, up up the seats. No one was coming down. And I looked down. No one was coming up. And I thought, well, here we go. So I stood up and I said to them, I'm a registered nurse. And they said, oh, good. So eventually I looked after this man and all the rest of it. And I knew where we were. We'd come out of Manchester and I knew we needed to land. And so I assessed him very quickly. I asked for some oxygen. 
thought he was going to have a stroke. I or he ha- was having a stroke, and I asked for some aspirin. I got people around helping out, and um, I said, um, "Where are we going to land?" To the air hostesses, and they looked at me. I said, "Well, we need to land in Glasgow." And so, um, so they must have spoke to the captain, and I said, "Right, is the captain talking to um, the people on the land?" And they said, "Yes." I said, "Well, I need to talk to a doctor." No, that that was not a happening thing. So I helped this man, gave him some oxygen, gave him some aspirin, and we were landing in Glasgow. Now, the next day, that was in the head of the newspaper, was the aeroplane emergency landing in Glasgow. And I said, we didn't have an emergency landing. It might have been an emergency going on. but So there we are. That gives a good example of being a nurse, always a nurse. Indeed. And I love the way that you say, I am a nurse with conviction and passion. Thank you. So um, much of your work involves research and how did you go from, and where was your early experience in nursing and how did you then move into the area of uh, perhaps rural health and then research? Okay. Um, Well, let's take me back to Wales when I had completed my training, hospital training, and um, was a registered nurse um, and just, I'll take you back to, you know, originally, um, we weren't a low population density, but we were access to health services. And I was realised that, um, that our patients in our small district general hospital had to transfer into England to receive certain kind of treatments. For example, I was an oncology trained nurse, a cancer trained nurse, and patients had to um, go into England to receive radiotherapy. Um, and I felt, wow, you know, this is, this is a lot for the people, the people that I'm looking after. Again, context. A lot of those people were Welsh was the first language. Um, they come from a very um, intense rural area of Wales. And they had to be transferred into England. Some of them never been into England before. Um, and I felt, you know, we need to do more here to be able to improve access to health care. Um, and so that became a passion of mine, actually be, I, noting that there was not equity of health care for all. We're talking about the very early 80s. Um, and I think that was something that was innate in me again, about fairness, about equity, about doing the most that we could. And I had, I suppose, a, an aggregate, a specific population that were um, patients who generally had blood conditions, so um, leukemias, um, so therefore they were they were part of our practice from diagnosis generally to death and in that interim time I wanted to make their life as as meaningful as possible with the people that they their families and but also when they had to come into hospital they felt that they were coming to people they trusted people that they knew people first name name um, and that they felt safe so that was very much part of my um, philosophy, um, and I was very, um, at that time, ensured not only I but other nurses were aware of that and aware of the importance of making sure that people felt safe. Um, 
So that was that was back then, and I've I've worked with that ever since. My f- and wh- why I'm talking about that is because that's leading on to my first piece of research that I did, and I think it was 1986, um, and I was doing a research course at the time as a registered nurse, and one part was to take a very small research project. And again, I felt fairness to the, the patients that were receiving chemotherapy. And as we all know, chemotherapy, the side, one side effect is nausea and vomiting. And um, it, despite medication, despite giving, giving antiemetics, um, some patients really do suffer from that. And I was particularly interested in, and people may remember them, as C-bands which were a little elastic band, a little elastic bracelet with a plastic knob inside it where you needed to uh, put it on a specific acupuncture point on the wrist. So you needed to measure, you needed to put it in a specific place. And my research project was to see if the the patients receiving chemotherapy, if they use C-bands, would that minimise their effects of feeling sick, despite having um, medication to help that as well. And so I put a little proposal together, did a little project, got other people involved because it was a 24-hour um, round-the-clock um, method, the method that I was using, and um, fired away. And that was my first piece of research. And actually, um, I was looking at some of my previous uh, evidence of my portfolio just a few months ago, and that's why it's important to keep paper a paper trail of things that we actually um, have done in the past. And there was a photograph of me, like I was how old, 26, um, with a gentleman that I do remember. Uh, it was um, it was it was uh, a photograph in the newspaper. And there was I with the C-bands and this gentleman. And I remember him to this day. Um, and that was my, so my first part of research. Since then, I've realized, you know, 1986, that research informs practice. And as nurses, we are the partakers of evidence and are able to inform practice through our own endeavors. We are the people that are 24-7 looking after patients. We're the people that actually utilize other people's evidence, but we are the people also that can contribute to that. And being in that milieu of being able to contribute, make a difference, make a change, inform policy, inform practice, is part of the cycle of nursing, or part of practice. So I've been a researcher since 1986, and I'm still a researcher, and I know it makes a difference. And I enjoy it, and I teach now research to student nurses, um, and I don't just teach research, how to research. I uh, encourage them to apply their small undertaking of research in practice and how that makes a difference for local, for individuals, families, for now, and for population groups and community. It's wonderful to hear your uh, enthusiasm and passion that shines through. And I'm sure the audience uh, listeners that you are feeling that as well. In uh, the bio, you uh, mention about uh, strategic foresight. So what do you mean by that? Okay, so it means not taking the everyday for granted. It means thinking ahead thinking strategically ahead, thinking that um, we are able to make a difference or a difference can be made, but doesn't always come about. And so it's about having a futuristic view of the world, but being grounded in 
a philosophical underpinning that isn't wishy-washy. It's solid. It's um, my foundation of who I am, my philosophy of knowing that things can make a difference, but also knowing that not everything I do or others do will come to fruition, um, that not everything is, everything's not created equally, that a lot of things that, that I have done in the past have had closed doors, have not been fulfilled, but it's not to say, well, I'm not going to carry on. So it's strategic in effect that um, always looking for opportunity, looking for challenges, ensuring that walking, walking the talk, but also keep moving, being creative, um, listening to others and having a vision that others are able to understand and want to come on board with too. That's what I believe is, is a strategic foresight. So it's not just being visionary, it's having a, stable, well, a, a, a strategy in which to get there. And it might be based on things that, that I've done in the past, um, but also to change things because we need to be moving and changing um, and put, bringing others alongside with us. For in your early years, what influences or who were the types of role models that brought to you to this place today and your strength and courage to really uh, look critically at the way we nurse and the results yeah. through your research? Yeah. Um, I think, firstly, I've got an open mind. Um, I have looked at others and thought, I want to be like you. I want to be able to have the ability to, um, and, I, and you know, nurses talk about advocate for others. Advocate for others is not an easy thing to do. But to do it as part of your or my everyday practice is, it requires a lot of courage. It requires a knowing um, and that people trust you in doing that. And I've seen that in others when I was a much younger nurse. I've seen it not in a lot of people, but in some people, how they really stick the ground and they say, this is how I'm going to support you. This is what I believe in you. Um, and they demonstrate it. So it's a model. It's, it's modeling values. Um, and I've seen that. And so therefore, I know that change can occur or, or and um, you can support others. So I suppose that has I've been I've built that up as in the many, many years I've been a nurse. Um, and it's about for others to know that they trust you. And I think that's really important. So if a wrong is being done wrong, is if there's a wrong, or if something can be done better, um, knowing that there is a person that can support, I think is in particularly very important. Um, but it's having the courage to do that and to not to be able to ensure that to discuss that with the most to the people involved to make change. Um, I want to give you some examples, um, but I'm being um, I'm being um, I'm going to give you an example of community development. 
it's it's work that I'm doing at the moment with student nurses. Um, we work in a in a geographical location. So, for example, let's take let's take um, Milton in down south, thirty minutes from Dunedin, and the students go there. Like I worked with twelve students last um, July August. That was the geographical location they'd been assigned to. And so they have some frameworks, nursing frameworks, in which to assess the community, undertake a community profile, um, look at it strategically. So there's another strategic foresight coming in. And um, then they meet with local people in the community and they have a discussion about this is the data we have gathered, this is what we found, and this is where we think there could be some health needs that, that could be improved. And in collaboration with community people, um, a health need is um, decided upon and a population group. Now, that requires for the students to go there with a blank page, for the students to be able to trust in the process, there needs to be a relationship that I build with the students um, and that I will support them because it's not going to go smoothly. Balls are going to be in the air and they need to trust me. But the end product of a four-week project of working with 10 students is that not only have they um, identified a health need and a population group, they have undertaken a significant l review of the literature in relation to that topic. One of the um, health needs that was identified by these students was that there was anxiety with primary school children. Um, and they pulled that through. They actually looked to the literature about primary school children and anxiety, both in New Zealand and internationally. Um, and they were particularly interested in how can that be reduced. Now, that's significant, really, if you can make a difference at local level with local children, local people. And um, so as they researched what um, resources that could be developed, what, what health promotion messages, they came up with a beautiful idea, um, evidence-based, and they developed a what's called, the, uh, looks like a light bulb, and it's... Um, it can fit in the, in, the, in the palm of a child's hand. It's yellow, and it's got some writing on it. And it's got one, two, three, four, five. And it's got the words breathe. And the whole idea of this is that if a primary school child, generally between the age of six and eight, um, is feeling anxious, they can go to a certain area in the, in the classroom and pick up a light bulb, squeeze it, and do the exercise one, two, three, four, five, breathe. But while they're doing that, the teacher can also see that the child is holding the light bulb, the squeezy ball light bulb. Um, not only is the child initiating their own self-awareness um, of their anxiety, but also trying to improve that, the teacher is also available. So the students also developed a resource for the teacher on how to encourage um, when they see the child with the light bulb to encourage them as to what they're doing, why they're doing it, and so they are, an, they are an added resource as well, but a support person. So that's one example. And what we do then is the resources are sent back to the, in this instance, to the primary school, to the principal, who knows this is coming because they worked in collaboration. And then six months later, I will then 
um, initiate a further follow-up with that principal to ask a number of questions, generally four main questions. Has the resource or the message that the students developed, has that made any difference? Now that's having really good impact on local communities, but then other people are getting quite interested in that, and that could go further afield. Fascinating. So, Jean, uh, today you have chosen for your song uh, from the Tapestry album, Carol King, You've Got a Friend. Oh 
Listening to Changing Lens is a nurse's story, and today uh, we are speaking with Jean Ross. And we've just listened to Carol King's record, uh, Tapestry, and the song is called You've Got a Friend. So, what does that mean to you, Jean? Well, just um, listening to that clip again has just brought back to me, um, I think, initially, what we started talking about in this interview is that doesn't matter. Different seasons, doesn't matter the circumstance in which we find ourselves in, that um, you've got a friend. And to have a friend is to have somebody that you trust, that is reliable, that is um, a person that at times, good, bad, indifferent, that you can call upon. And... I actually think that that is significant in in my life. Um, I'm an extremely busy person. Um, I've moved around quite a bit. And I have a 34, nearly 35-year-old son, a 27-year-old daughter, and a 17-and-a-half-year-old son. So my life not only has been busy in my in my nursing, but my life is busy as a mother. And now, recently in October, a grandmother. Um, And that doesn't mean that you can give your friends, your true friends, all the time that perhaps they do deserve. But you can call upon them any time to say, I'm coming to Christchurch, can you put me up tonight? Because you're my dear friend. (laughs) And that's what happened yesterday. I I came, as you know, from Iceland, and my dear friend Jenny put me up last night, lent me her car today, and um, we've had a lovely conversation last night and this morning. Certainly, uh, friends uh, make a difference in when you can just ring up and call, and you can do that. You know that you've got a really great friend. So in all the work that you do, and being a mother and now a grandmother, Mm -hmm. congratulations, um, what are the things that you do to provide your own self-care? And sometimes as nurses, we can sometimes be our 
own worst enemy in regards to self care. Mm-hmm. So, what are the things that you do that help you recenter and ground you? Well, not what you think that I should <laughs> be doing, <laughs> because I don't. Um, I think where I get my inspiration from, where I get my um, my essence of who I am, my creative, well, I, maybe it's not my creativity, my essence of me, what feeds me isn't perhaps what you'd think is relaxing or reading a book. Or da, 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 da. It's not. It's doing more. And I'm being honest with that. It is about doing more. Um, I, I constantly see things that need to be improved. And sometimes I go into work and I say, I have an idea. And they go, oh, no. Well, I do have an idea. Because everywhere around us, it's, um, I cannot stop. I'm not blinkered. And so um, taking time for me is maybe one thing I need to learn. Um, and I can, I can be on that treadmill being over busy, and I think at some stage, some people say to me, Jean, my son does, Jean. Just, oh, he doesn't say Jean, he says, Mum, you know, you need to chill. You need to chill. So I'm not the, I'm not the best one to give advice on self-care. I know what needs to happen. But I did stop today and I went and had a coffee, which is something I don't usually do. And it was very nice sitting outside in the sunshine, having a coffee. And maybe that's something I need to feed myself more in the future, is to put music on more often, to be in the moment. So maybe 2019, I'll maybe see that. And maybe with my new group of friends in Changing Lenses, we may all help each other. So you talk about uh, sustainability, community development uh, in your bio. What do you mean by sustainability? Okay, that's a really curly one. (laughs) Because I took on the challenge about sustainability in nursing practice. Uh, Where I work at Tiger Polytechnic, about 2008, 2010, Phil Kerr, the CEO, made a commitment that all degree programs, all graduates from degree degree programs from a Tiger Polytechnic would um, graduate as a sustainable practitioner. And I took on the challenge for the School of Nursing and I said, um, we need to look at this seriously uh, because we, at the moment, are not developing sustainable practitioners. And what does sustainability mean? And to, other, to a lot of people, it means different things. And that is really important in un covering the layers of the core of what sustainability means. Now, this is a, let's think about it, an eight to nine year period. A lot has happened about the concept of sustainability and how we consider it, how we work it through. Just, I would say, in eight years, and specifically in nursing. So there is an international movement in relation to sustainability in nursing, which I'm part of, which I really enjoy, because, again, it's about core values. It's about um, one's own beliefs. And so to uncover what people believe in sustainability, I undertake a workshop with the student nurses, so year one, two, and three, um, 
because I don't think we are able to encourage or to actually develop sustainable practitioners until we have debriefed or uncovered what our own values of it is. And I think, you know, so eight, four years ago, five years ago, that was a lot more entrenched as to values and beliefs. I believe sustainability is this, that and the other. But ha however, now, given more evidence, given climate change, the effects on health, the effects on disease, effects on housing, effects on poverty, um, and we now know that for certainty, that has an influence in nursing and that has an inf influence that so as sustainable, um, as degree um, graduate nurses completing the Bachelor of Nursing at Otago Polytechnic, they are also a sustainable graduate, a sustainable practitioner. And I think it's really important that we ensure that happens both um, both individually with Family Farnow and with community. So from a very local national a national international perspective and i'm building that through as we revise our bachelor of nursing curriculum so to be a sustainable practitioner what does sustainable mean it means really considering our own practice both as a nurse but as a personal and professionally how we live our lives and again it's based on ethics and our belief system um, and part of an education is about offering different ways of understanding the world, understanding sustainability, and also about debriefing what individuals come to a Bachelor of Nursing with their own preconceived ideas to move them into being a sustainable practitioner. So what do you see, um, probably before that actually, you mentioned Otago Polytechnic. Mm -hmm. So why did you choose Otago? It didn't, I didn't choose it, it chose me. Um, I was working at the Christchurch School of Medicines here in, um, in Christchurch and um, started there with the opportunity of developing and supporting rural practitioners in 1994. Moved into another piece of research I did, actually my second piece of research I did, uh, which was commissioned by the Southern Regional Health Authority. And it's, it was to look at initially at rural practice nurses what skills they required. And that was in 1995. And so I undertook a, a survey. And in the end, it moved from rural practice nurses to all nurses in the South Island who worked in the community. And that was that was that was the catalyst. That was the real change. Um, so much so that from that from the um, data that I gathered to writing it up, from that stemmed the development of the first um, interdisciplinary primary rural health care um, educational programme uh, funded by the Clinical Training Agency, which ran through the Christchurch School of Medicine. So in addition to that, we, we that's Dr. Martin London and myself, we set co-directors and we set up the National Centre for Rural Health, the first ever in New Zealand, to support rural practitioners, undertake significant research funded by the Ministry of Health, and to run the interdisciplinary rural primary health care diploma. Amazing time, really visionary Yes, we had some ups and we had some lows. And that com was completed in 2003 when we lost both contracts. Gone. Um, very political. And at that time, I was shoulder tapped by Dr. Alison Dixon. 
she was the head of school of um, school of nursing down in Otago Polytechnic, to come and set up the first nurse practitioner pathway in from 2003 onwards. And so that's what I did. I went down to Dunedin, and um, we had here in Christchurch, um, we had a number of nurses. Uh, rural nurses from around New Zealand who were studying the Diploma of Primary Healthcare. And they had the opportunity to carry on with the Christchurch School of Medicine, but uh, 40 of them followed me to complete their Masters of Nursing at Tiger Polytechnic, of which maybe 15 of those became nurse practitioners. So that's why I went to Otago, Um and have been there since 2003 at Targa Polytechnic. So tell us about the books and the award that you've won. Okay. Uh, in 2008, I published, I published the first edited book named Rural Nurses, Aspects of Practice. Um, I was extremely aware of, for example, the nurses that had completed their master's and uh, completed with a dissertation or thesis, uh, which was either their original piece of, of work or um, undertaking and looking at real evidence in relation to a topic they were interested in. And I knew around New Zealand there were many nurses who were completing their master's. And so I had this idea to capture all of that into a book. So I went for rural innovative funding through the Ministry of Health, it was successful, um, and generated enough funding so that I could develop this book. And what I did was I put out to the whole of New Zealand uh, certain criteria, completed a master, a rural nurse, completed a master's with a topic related to, to rural, rural health. And um, if you'd like to have that significantly reduced from your 20,000 words to 5,000 words to be part of a chapter, or to, no, to be part of the book and to have your own chapter in that book. And 16 nurses interested, maybe there was more, but uh, so 16 nurses got published in the book. The book to that was published in 2008 and um, up to date, evidence based great information ranged from theory of nursing, rural nursing, to specific clinical issues, to the future of issues that they were um, focusing on. It was the first book. And I think that's the, that was the first book that I published, but the first in New Zealand related to rural from any discipline. Second book has just been published now, end of December 2018. And that's moved us from um, capturing other people's ideas to actually now owning what is rural nursing? And so again, I put it out to the nurses in New Zealand who um, would they like to share their story, very similar to what you're doing, would they like to share their story of rural nursing in the previous 15, 20 years? So the criteria was they all needed to be in practice, clinical practice for that time. Um, and again, we've had 40, 50 nurses interested. We've narrowed that down for the book for 16 nurses, again 16, and they're all being published as an individual rural story of which I'm trying to capture the themes but capture the essence of nursing in rural New Zealand forever in a specific time period. So what for the future? Um, keep moving. Identifying that nursing makes a significant difference, that nurses in, in my speciality, which is rural, um, have a, a unique 
um, a unique makeup to be able to practice rurally. Um, my, as I said before, the first educational diploma that I put together was specifically about rural. So it took the rural, rurality, rural culture and embraced rural practice as a speciality. For the future, I want to still continue to work with Nursing Council and say that rural is a speciality and rural nursing needs to be identified and to be acknowledged and respected as such is really important. Um, in, an, in, in addition to that, we're moving into sustainability, we're moving into nursing making a difference and I, I'm in a privileged position to be um, working with student nurses um, to be specifically able to understand their practice I think is very important and to hold their shoulders up high and say I am a practitioner and I understand about futuristic things. I understand what's going on in the world today. I understand that nursing is local, national and international and nursing has a significant difference uh, to, to make, make in the world. Um, what I'd like to add to that is that um, my speciality rural just doesn't relate to rural practice and nurses in rural areas. Every nurse in New Zealand, I believe, and I believe strongly, either cares for rural people in their own geographical location, but more importantly, that nurses in district general hospitals, in the tertiary centres, also care for rural people, and therefore the importance for them to understand how rural people think the rural culture, rurality, is as important as being able to fun function effectively as a rural practitioner. So what for the future, I want to have rural everywhere. I want everybody to understand rural. And then I'll be happy. And sustainability. So, uh, Jean, just let's um, look at your final song uh, before we play it, David Bowie, Changes. Well, I chose Changes um, because I wanted to be able to connect what I'm sharing in my story. Um, Dave Bowie's very much uh, been part of my uh, my teens. Um, I just significantly liked his songs. I liked where he was coming from. I liked that he was different. Um, uh, he he meant a lot to me when I was growing up, and I think his story is particularly interesting in the way that um, when he left this world, he made a significant change in how he did that. He was strategic in how he uh, ensured that there was an album as he was dying. There was a new album. Um, and I think his messages are more than what's in the songs, but it's actually his whole essence of who he was. Changes is more to to me and the understanding of, of, of his song Changes, um, of the song and the words, but actually the interpretation and how I interpret changes, um, that we're not static, that things are in movement and embrace it, and it's different for everybody. But the essence of change is similar because we move from one state of being to another state. And in the process of that movement is that we are in a, an environment that uh, puts us in a vulnerable position 
and we need support around us when we're in these changing positions. But actually, um, what we when we start the process of the change movement, we are going to end up in in a significantly better place than where we started. So Dave Bowie and changes. And my time was running wild A million dead-end streets And every time I thought I got it made It seemed the taste was not so sweet So I turned myself to face me But I've never caught a glimpse Of how the others must see the faker I'm much too fast to take that test Ch-ch-ch-changes Turn and face the strain Ch-ch-changes Don't wanna be a richer man Thank you for joining us. We look forward to your feedback. You can supply feedback on Anna at AnnaAikman.com. That's A-N-A-H 
at Anna, A-N-A-H, Aikman, A-I-K-M-A-N dot com. Changing Lenses, a unique perspective is available on podcast on planesfm.org.nz. Type in Changing Lenses. Kakite anō. Until next time, go well, be well and travel well. This is Anna Aikman and you have been listening to Changing Lenses. <laughs>